We're going to go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. And we're looking at these one another passages, how we're to live life with one another. And we spent several months looking at positive commands of how we're to live with one another. We're to love one another, we're to carry one another's burdens, we're to be kind with one another, we're to be gentle with one another. Uh, And this is all a means that, that God puts in place for the church to keep the unity that has been bought by the blood of Christ. But we also have these commands that we we started looking at last week that are negative commands, whereas we're given, we've looked at so many positive, do this with one another, be hospitable to one another, a positive command, we're given negative commands as well, and that is, Don't do these things. And the reason why we don't do these things is because it threatens the unity of the church. And the unity of the church is of utmost importance because the unity and to achieve the unity of the church cost the Son of God his life. And because he was victorious over sin, he established unity in the church. So we dare not threaten the unity. And God's Word gives us instruction on how we keep this unity that has been bought by the blood of Christ. And so Galatians chapter 5.26 is one of these negative commandments. And it is this, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So that's the command, that we're not to be conceited, We're not to provoke one another, and we're not to be envious over one another. Now, it seems very basic. What does it mean to provoke? Don't annoy. Don't cause provocation or irritation in someone. And this is something that's intentional, that idea of provoking someone. It's intentional with knowledge of what you're doing. It's to provoke someone knowing this is going to provoke them. This is going to irritate them. This is going to do something to them. It comes in words. It comes in our actions with our interactions with other people. So we're told, don't do that. Don't annoy people. Don't be irritating to people. We're told not to envy. Well, it's defined this to envy is to experience a feeling of ill will due to a real or presumed advantage by someone else. So we're not to have envy over someone. So you can think of how that manifests itself. Jealousy over a person's uh, means or a person's success. Jealousy uh, would want to see them fail rather than succeed. And so envy manifests itself in that way. Envy is really to be intimidated by someone else. To be jealousy, have jealousy is intimidation. And in the Christian realm, it could be a jealousy of the one that seems to have their Christian life altogether, and your Christian life may not seem to be altogether. And so we're not to have envy in that situation. We're to actually rejoice for our Christian brother or sister that what seems to us, because it's never that simple and neat, they have it together, whereas maybe we don't. 
Now, this command of provoking one another and envying one another, it comes after this of, let's not be conceited. Let us not be conceited. Now, to be conceited is to be boastful, to be arrogant, to be prideful. And this is the root of so many sins, but it's here conceited is to be falsely proud. To be proud of oneself without actually justification of being proud. There's no reason that they really should carry the arrogance they have. Now, this is a general command. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or from empty pride. And that empty pride comes in that same idea there of being conceited. So we're not to be conceited, and then we're told, do nothing that you do with conceit. Do nothing from pride. Now, conceit is connected to provoking and envying because conceit lays the foundation. Conceit is the fertile soil from which envy and provoking grows out of. And so we have to start with that idea of conceit, that it is the foundation for provoking and envying because conceit starts with this as, How do I view myself? And if it's how I view myself, and if I view myself in an elevated manner, then there's going to be certain manifestations of how that responds. But conceit never stops with just myself. If conceit has to do with how I view myself, that also translates then to how I see other people. So conceit is not a a sin that just stays within us and is a problem of pride within us. It's actually transferred to how we we see other people. So Paul tells us very clearly, let us not become conceited. Let let that not that spring spring up. And so for one to be in this state of conceit, would make it easy to think that they can just provoke others or show envy to others. To be envious because we think we can have what they have or that it should be ours, their life. Now the context of this comes in verse 16. So let's look at chapter 5, verse 16. Paul's going to give us this statement But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step in the Spirit. So, it's like like bookends here. We need to walk in the Spirit, not walk after the flesh. And he's going to tell us what the flesh is, and he's going to tell us what is the fruit of the Spirit in that process as well. And when we get to, well, okay, what does it mean exactly to live by the Spirit? What does it mean to live by the flesh? What he commands us in verse 26, our main passage, all the way to chapter 6, verse 10, is what it means. And there's a connection between all of these. So he tells us, what is the desire of the flesh? Verse 17. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. So there, there's a contradiction between the fleshly desires and desires that come from God the Spirit. It says, And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He goes on to say, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Let me ask you, do those ever any of those manifest themselves in our lives? Yes, they do. All of us, without exception. And so we have to recognize that when that manifests itself in our lives, we're not walking according to the Spirit, but we're actually walking according to fleshly desires that we're told died when we came to Christ. The old man is dead, as we're told. He says this about those things, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we just said, well, hold on, we, we all do those things. Does that mean that I don't have salvation? Well, no, it, it means that you struggle with sin. But if those are the characteristics and the defining things of our life, you might want to examine whether you know the Lord. That's the whole point of what that means. In contrast to that, this is the flesh. He goes on to say, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So when you're exhibiting those things in your life, you are being, being drawn along by the Spirit, and the Spirit is producing that in your life. That's why it's called fruit. It's because the Spirit is producing that work in you. What did we learn about the flesh? We saw this contrast. This is what the flesh wants to do. That's what's natural to us as being sons of Adam, daughters of Adam. But because we have been born again, and the Spirit of God lives within us, there's this fruit that's produced. And that fruit is not natural to our state in Adam, but that fruit is part of our new birth. And that's why we go from these things of the flesh to things of faithfulness, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That begins to be what characterizes us versus other things. He goes on to say in verse 24, And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Okay, so what does it mean to crucify? The to crucify something means it's dead. It's a picture of crucifixion of Christ is that Christ died upon the cross. So to crucify something is to kill it. That's how it's used in Scripture. So then Paul follows this, if then, that's the conditional statement. Some, some Bibles might have it translated since, which removes the conditional aspect of it. This is a conditional sentence, though. The SV, I think, gets it right. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, so I'm supposed to have uh, joy, love, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. 
of which there is no law against those things. Okay, so how, and that's, that's the fruit of the Spirit. How do I walk in that now? Well, he begins to say this, telling us how. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay, still, what does that mean? Verses 1 through 10 in chapter 6 begin to unfold that for us. So, how is it that we show our conceit? Or, how is it that we may provoke or envy? He begins to instruct us in this. And I know that we have looked at these passages when we uh, specified verse 2, but it's really helpful to look at it from this negative command. He says, brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. And so positively, how we are to live is this, is that when someone's in sin, we are to seek to restore them. Now this word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Ezra, is used for rebuilding the walls, uh, bringing them back to being sturdy. And so this picture here is that one who's caught in a transgression, we're to be part of that process. We're, we're the means that God uses to seeing strength coming back to them. Well, here's where this is related to conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. Provoking someone, envying someone, walking with conceit, it does not build up. But the explicit command here is that we are to do what? The one that's caught in transgression, we're to come alongside them and help them. But if we have conceit, or if we provoke, or we are envious of them, what we will do is actually the opposite. Again, if this is tied to unity, what we're doing, in effect, by allowing conceit to be there, or provoking, or envy, is we're allowing something that tears down rather than it builds up. It means that we don't have the interest of our brother in mind. And if you think about the connection of this, who one is caught in sin with the idea of envy, Envy seeks to put ourselves above others. Now, if I'm seeking to put myself above others, and I have this inflated view of myself because of conceit, and envy comes out of my brother that maybe I thought had his life together, what does the envious person do when that person is caught in a transgression? Well, they don't build them up. They actually rejoice over their downfall. You see this happen. You see this happen in ministry, where one brother will, will, will fail, and others think about what they can gain from the fall of that brother. It could result in rejoicing rather than mourning, And it would not result in seeking to rebuild that person, but rather envy drives them to see them and keep them in their failure so that they can elevate themselves. Why? Because they have a conceited view of themselves. 
Conceit may lead one to provoke them when fallen. And how could that look? It could be treat them with disdain. You sin and beat them down when they've sinned, when they've got caught up in transgression, rather than a brother who comes alongside them and helps them and pulls them out of this and walks with them in it. Conceit or will, will keep them from doing that. Now this leads to what we see also here is this. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So what is the positive statement here is watch out yourself, which is contradictory to being conceited. To watch yourself recognizes, wait, I saw my brother fall, I saw him sin, so there's a good chance I could also be in that same place if it weren't for God's grace. I too can be sin. So conceit does not allow a person to see themselves realistically, but rather through an inflated view of themselves. So let me just say this. If you struggle with arrogance, if you struggle with pride, you will not see yourself as you truly are. You will see yourself through the inflated lens of your mind. And that's what conceit does to a person. It inflates their image of themselves. The one provoking or envious is always looking at others rather than humbly dealing with their own proneness to sin. That's why he says keep watch over yourself lest you too be tempted. But the one that is, that is led by conceit and envy, he's like, I would never be in that situation. He has an inflated view of himself. And we're positively told, here, bear one another's burdens. In verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Conceit will not allow you to bear burdens with, of someone else because you're above it if you're conceitful. Nor will envy because it will not want to help the person. And provoking will want to kick the person while they're carrying a burden. I always think of the imagery of, of in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian has the, the, the burden on his back. And he's carrying that burden. And you can just get the imagery that Bunyan was using in having that burden upon one's back. Well, we're to be there to help them with that, but uh, the one that's envious will not do that. They will not help the one that is in a burden. Let me give you an example of that. If you look over in Philippians chapter 1, in verse 15, Paul's in prison, and he doesn't know whether he's going to be executed. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And so, while he's in prison, there's a group of preachers that are preaching the right message, because Paul doesn't correct their message, but they're preaching in a way that will harm Paul. So, if you think of it like this, Paul's in prison. He's got a burden on his back. 
So what should we do if we were Christian brothers with Paul and that burden on his back? Seek to help him. So what are these people that are, one, conceited, that are seeking to provoke, and are envious of Paul? We see exactly what they do. It says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So put put it all together what Paul says. He says that there are those that are doing this out of envy. Well, why would they be envious? Well, he was the Apostle Paul. It would be pretty easy to develop envy over him if you're a preacher. He was Paul. And so they're envious of Paul while Paul's in prison. What is it that they do is they seek to provoke him. He says it by thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So not only are they conceited in their view of themselves, rather rather than bear a burden with Paul, they provoke him out of their envy of him. This all comes from an inflated view of themselves. And so they're guilty of all three things. What's amazing about it is this, is Paul's response. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. They're seeking to harm him, to provoke him. Is Paul provoked? Nope. He says the message of Christ is going out there. I don't care what their motivations are. It's not going to bother me. He sees the bigger picture. So, when we see this, bear one another's burdens. We are to bear one another's burdens, and we have to know what it is that will get in the way of that. Paul also tells us here is this, where we're told, for if anyone thinks he is something, then he is nothing, and he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. So we're told here to test our work rather than comparison to our neighbor. That's where it becomes really easy for envy to to develop. Look, if Christ has called you to a task and has gifted you for a task, it's likely that someone else has also been gifted and called to a task very similar. How does envy pop up? Is beginning to actually compare ourselves to that person and test ourselves against that person rather than just being faithful to what God has called us to. This is why he says, but let each one test his own work. Don't test your neighbor's work. Test your work. Don't compare yourself to your neighbor. Base things on your gifting and calling before God, not on others' which actually asserts yourself over them. And guess what? If someone's more gifted in an area that you are gifted in, praise the Lord. 
That's hard to do. It's hard to deal with sometimes the Lord's providences that are come about in our life and circumstances that come about. But if someone is being used of the Lord, that's a time not of envy, but that's a time to rejoice. Now, envy, envying continually places one against another person. So our comparison is directed in the wrong area. And if we're constantly doing that, we're, absor- we're absorbed with one person. And who is that? Ourselves. It's a manifestation of conceit, which Paul says and commanded, let us not become conceited. He goes on to say, be responsible for yourself in verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. Which means this, we alone will stand before God and give an account. And so our concern that we have for others, because we're called to have concern for others, is directed at helping them. But an envying or a heart that wants to provoke will be concerned with oneself and not about another person. It will not be concerned with helping others. And we're told that we're to share in mutual fellowship, verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, there's two views of this. One is that you're to support the one that's teaching. And that's a biblical concept. The other view of it is this is speaking of our mutual fellowship that we're called to share with one another, the teacher and the one being taught. Regardless, it is a giving of oneself's for the sake of others. What will not allow us to give of ourselves or give of our means to others? Conceit, envy, rather we would seek to provoke. And then positively again, verse 10. He says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Very interesting. So do good to everyone. What will not allow us to do good to everyone? If we're envious, we're not going to do good for those people that we're envious of. But I want you to just notice real quick in verse 10, it shows us a priority. Do you see the priority? So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. What's the priority? Is there's this good that we're to do in this covenant community that takes place in the church. It's to be exemplary because the world's going to be watching it. And as the world watches it, guess what? Paul says, you got to do good to them as well. So the, we see a priority that doing good to everyone is first in the church. We have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters first and foremost. But then second... We are to show a compassion and do good for our unbelieving uh, neighbor. We are to see that. Now, when he says this, so then, as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, if opportunity arises, we are to do it. I want to look at that opportunity in a different direction, though, because wherever we see this command of doing good, it comes in the form of you have limited time on earth. That limited time you have left, guess what that is? 
your opportunity. So it's not like I'll do good when there's an opportunity for me to do good. It's while you have time left on this earth, you're to be doing good to everyone and especially your brothers. You see, similar idea in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So make use of the time we have. In Colossians chapter 4, 6, Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. But he says in verse 5, Making the best use of the time. And so we are not only watching for opportunity But as long as we're living, guess what that is? That's your opportunity to do good for your brother, your sister, and for your neighbor. Now, he says some negative things here. And the first I would say is this, is a repeat of what he already said. Let us not become conceited. If you look at verse 3, what does he say? If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Paul did not take courses in teaching people about warm fuzzies. Because he doesn't approach things like that. He's combating conceit. He's combating pride that exists within the human heart. And so the one who is conceited is not concerned with helping, but rather they think only of themselves because they see themselves as elevated above others. But what do we know about God's grace? None of us earned it. None of us deserve it. We're all on an equal playing field before God. We're all separated by our sin, and it's entirely dependent upon Him and His grace. That's an equalizer. If there was one that could say, I've kept the law perfectly, I have done everything right, Well, he might be something, but none of us can say that. Tom Schreiner, the commentator, says, Those who do not help others in their struggles, who live lives of splendid isolation, are guilty of this pride. Think about that splendid isolation in the way he says it. And so he tells us this is in verses 7 and 8, not to be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He says, do not be deceived. You see this idea of deception that could come up to one that professes Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. He gives us this warning, chapter 15, in verse 33. Do not be deceived, he says. And he says, bad company ruins good morals. These are all warning passages, and 
concerning heavenly inheritance. And the context is living for oneself at the expense of others versus living for others. Now, Paul's not speaking of a works-based salvation. Not at all. In fact, he has said this already. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so he's already told us that we are set free from the demands of a work-based salvation. We just read in several places where we are given warnings about falling away or those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are real warnings that we're given. And the point is this, and this is where we have to take this to heart. The Christian is not envious. The Christian is not conceited. Nowhere in Scripture will you see a definition of a Christian as defining them as being prideful. It's actually, we're described as this, meek, humble. We're described as light. We're described as salt. We never see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you who are darkness will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says, no, you're light, you're salt. You're the meek. You're the poor in spirit. You are those who thirst and hunger after righteousness. That is the descriptions that the Bible gives us. The Christian does not provoke. The Christian is not conceited. Those things belong to the old nature which is dead. And so those who sow to the flesh, it says, do not belong to Christ. Why? Because the old nature for those in Christ, is dead. It's gone. But, we, have to, we can't miss what he says here. Those who sow to the flesh do not belong to, the Christ. He sa- to Christ. He says, his own flesh, which indicates a continuation of this idea that we struggle in this life. And so we have to see, verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And that indicates that we continue to struggle. How many of us struggle with conceit? How many of us struggle with envy? How many of us at times may provoke? But that does not define you. You're not those things. You may struggle with it. It may be a war within you, but it's not who you are. Now, that's not definitional of us. And in verse 6, which we saw, was about giving either of means or fellowship, and, in, and the introduction is that of conceit. The whole point is that the Christian is the one who lives for others before himself. And who is our model and example of that? Christ, who gave of himself. We're told this in verse 9, another negative thing. It's stated negatively as this, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So he said already, do good. Negatively it's stated this, don't grow weary of it. 
And weary here specifically means to lose one's motivation rather than look forward to the prize. And again, this is a warning, but yet it's also a reality of the Christian life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And that idea of reaping and sowing is always tied to that final judgment. Don't give up. Keep moving forward. Look forward to the prize. Now here's what we have to understand what's traditionally called eternal security of the believer. I wholeheartedly believe that. But this is helpful to know that theologians of the past didn't normally call it internal security. They called it perseverance, which more adequately describes what the Bible says of the Christian life, is that it is a life of perseverance. In fact, the London Confession of Faith says this of perseverance, Though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. But we are told in Scripture, don't be deceived. We are told in Scripture, those that do these such things. And we're given here, here's the motivation. It's looking to the prize of glory. Keep doing good. And I don't believe that it's mutually exclusive to say that the God who calls and justifies and will glorify His people, that He tells those same people, be careful, do good, examine yourself, look forward to the prize. So, conceit, envy, provoking are dispositions not of the Christian, but of the non-Christian. It's those that focus entirely on themselves to the detriment of others. But the New Covenant community is not marked by selfish ambition and vain conceit, but rather by loving and self-giving to others. What kills this is conceit. What kills this is envy. What kills this is provoking. And because this manifests itself in personal relationships with others, there's a few things that may help us combat this in ourselves. If these things pop up in your heart every now and then. Here's the first thing. We want to see Christ honored in all things, which includes our behavior towards others. And so if you feel conceit or envy or something pop up, think of Christ and think of his church first and foremost. And people make up the church, but look at who they are. Because we get envious of people. It's people. But look at who the church is. It's these people that God has set his love upon in eternity and has called them out of darkness by the same grace that he has called you. When struggling with envy, recognize God's gifting and unique design of the church that it is according to his eternal plan and not ours. It's God's providence that God has gifted you the way He's gifted you. And praise Him for that because it's perfect according to His perfect plan. Remember our need of grace. And our need of grace is a needle to an inflated ego. We just remember grace. Now, what can help us deal with those that are conceited, envious, or provoke? 
is looking at the greater cause of Christ when we experience it. Look at Paul in prison. I rejoice as long as the gospel's preached. When we see it in others and we experience it from others, just recognize that, well, you do it too. So we should be on guard lest we fall, as Paul says. And then also this. This is the tough one. Remember he says, bear burdens of one another. If someone struggles with envy, if someone struggles with provoking others, if someone struggles with conceit, guess what? They're carrying on their back a burden of sin. And it's an opportunity to disciple them, to help with them, and if necessary, to even confront that to them. And so, we can sum it up with this, but let us not be Uh, Look at ourselves above others, lest we are tempted and we too fall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy and grace. And uh, thank you, Father, that you have called us out of the darkness to walk in your glorious light. We pray that by your grace, we would be a people marked by love, by humility, that we'd be a people marked by kindness, not by envy, not by conceit, that we would not be uh, people that provoke one another, but rather a people that live harmoniously with one another as you've called us to live. We're dependent upon your grace for this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.